Welcome to Book Wandering with me, Anna James, the podcast where I talk to another writer about their most beloved children's or YA book. I'm the author of the children's fantasy series Pages & Co and an arts journalist. This episode, I'm chatting with Angie Thomas, whose debut YA novel The Hate You Give was a publishing sensation and made into a film starring Amanda Stenberg. As well as other YA novels, Angie is also the author of a new middle grade fantasy series called Nick Blake and the Remarkables. While Angie was in London for its release, we chatted about her pick, Mildred D. Taylor's 1977 children's classic, Roll of Thunder, Hear My Cry, which won the Newbury Medal. We chat about the power of fiction to explore the past and potential futures, book bans, as well as the importance of magical transportation systems. You can find the books discussed today on my page at bookshop.org, linked below, which supports the podcast and independent bookshops. If you use the code BOOKWANDERER, you'll get free shipping on the books featured on this series, including Nick Blake and the Remarkables and Roll of Thunder, Hear My Cry. And finally, before we get into the episode, just to quickly note that while the podcast is largely suitable for children, this isn't geared at younger listeners. So welcome, Angie. Thank you so much for coming and being a guest. It's lovely to speak to you. Oh, thank you so much. It's awesome to be here. I've heard so many great things about your podcast, so I'm I'm honoured. <laughs> Oh, that's very kind of you. Thank you. Um, so to start with, could you just tell us which book you've chosen uh, and a bit about how you first encountered it? Yes, I have chosen Roll of Thunder, Hear My Cry by Mildred D. Taylor. I first encountered it, um, I th- want to say four, when I was in fourth grade, what were you all called grade four. Um, I was about nine years old. Um, and it was on my summer reading list for required reading. Um, so it was basically when I was leaving grade four and entering um, grade five. And it was one of the books that we could choose to read over the summer and write about. And, you know, sometimes those books would be boring and stuff like that. But this was one that I was like, wait a minute, the this book is about people like me and where I live. So it, I was immediately hooked. Mm-hmm. Um, and I feel like it is less uh, kind of regularly read in the UK. Um, so I was also hoping you could maybe just give us a kind of top level introduction to the story of the book and the Logan family. Absolutely. So it's actually the funny thing about it, and I didn't know this until recent years, it's one of several books in a Logan family saga. So um, there's like, I think, four or five other books. Um, And then, no, actually more, because there are four sequels, I think, and there are several prequels as well. But um, Roll of Thunder, Hear My Cry by Mildred D. Taylor takes place in 1933. And it's about the Logan family who live in rural Mississippi um, and is told from the point of view of the daughter, the only daughter in the family, Cassie, who is nine years old in the book. I mean, one thing that makes the Logan family very unique is it is that in 1933 in Mississippi, they're a black family and they own their own land. Um, which was unheard of back then. And so a big thing throughout the book is about their family's fight to keep their land um, because they have to pay taxes. And then part of the land they owe, they still owe a mortgage on. So Cassie's father, um, Papa, has gotten a job on the railroad. Um, and I want to say it's in Tennessee. And he's been, no, Louisiana, and he's been working on the railroad, so he's not with the family all the time, but he's doing this so that they can keep ownership of their land. Um, So that's like the big overall plot of the story. But the funny thing is, throughout the book, we have these smaller storylines that happen. 
um, such as um, the kids going to school for the, well, going to school every day and dealing with things um, that they encounter on their way to school. We also see um, what happens when the family boycotts a local grocery store um, that's owned by some, uh, a white family that has been terrorizing people. Um, and the Logans decide to be the one black family in the area that's going to boycott it, which brings them some trouble. And then we also have a storyline involving um, the oldest son, Stacy, his best friend, TJ, who gets himself into some trouble um, that could possibly end his life. And so it, there are several storylines going on throughout the book, but they all tie in to this one plot of we have to save the land. We have to do what we have to do to save the land. So it, it's it's it was for me, it was like a soap opera for a kid. <laughs> <laughs> and that's the case, isn't it, through the saga? Like it covers quite a wide span of time and you have all these different kind of lives, how they weave together and the different plot lines. And some of them are full of joy and some of them are really really complicated difficult things which like you say that's I like that soap opera yeah 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 and you know when I when I was reading it as a kid you know I'm like yeah Cassie's you know nine and there I was nine or ten and now as an adult I'm like oh my god Cassie was nine right you know the main <laughs> character and I'm thinking about some of the things she witnessed and some of the conversations she overheard you know and I'm thinking as an adult now I'm like she was nine. Oh my God. You know, how traumatizing. But then it reminded me too of there are things that older generations experienced that, you know, became so normalized to them that we now see as traumatic. But also it makes me think, of, hmm, you know, what are things that I experienced at nine that later on I'm going to be like, oh God, you know? Right. Right. And <laughs> I mean, so much of Ride of Thunder is also, it is seeing it through a nine year old's eyes and her grappling with what she has the power to change what she can't what is safe for her and how I think there's this the scene where her dad her I feel as a as a British person papa fits it so weirdly in my my mouth here like it's only <laughs> posh people who call their dad's yeah. papa <laughs> so, but when he sits her down and he he tells her about how it it's ultimately up to her to decide where that line is like what she can sit with what she can't and how she balances keeping her and her family safe with that um and I think that is really profound for a child to read about because we all have to go through that like how we use our voice where our power lies absolutely absolutely and reading that at when I was a kid did something for me and now I'm seeing kind of the ripple effect of that now as an adult you know um, I, I credit Roll of Thunder, Hear My Cry for being a real big reason. I wrote The Hate You Give, you right. know, wow. and, okay. and in a lot of ways, I saw the Carters as a contemporary version of the Logan family, you know, so there's some similarities there. <laughs> yeah, well, when I hadn't read Roll of Thunder, Hear My Cry before, and as I was reading it, I, and then reading it next to Nick Blake and reading it next to Hate You Give, I was, uh, uh, but it's one of the things I love about this podcast is when you read the books people pick next to their books it's so joyful seeing the way that these things inform writers and and get in there because I believe that um it even was the reason that you named Star's father that's where that's where that came from as well yeah it is it is there's a line early on in the book in fact it's one of my favorite scenes in the book um it's the scene where I know I'm spoiling it a little bit but it's early on but um it's the scene where Cassie and her brother, Little Man, as they call him, they've been given these books 
Um, all the kids are getting a book. And, you know, for these kids, it's like, oh, gosh, we're getting our own book. But then Cassie starts looking through the book and she realizes, oh, these are the books that they threw away at the white schools. And they're dirty. They're worn, torn, you know, all of this. And then there's a page where it lists, you know, the students who've had it previously by race. And it says white, 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 white. And then it gets down to the current uh, owner and it says the N-word. And it bothered her, but it really affected her little brother, little man. And so little man got so upset, he throws the book on the ground and he starts stomping on it. And the teacher, um, he was punished for that by the teacher, but their mom was also a teacher at the school. And um, Cassie overheard the teacher going to tell her mom, she's like, I can't believe he did that, blah, blah, blah. And her mom just starts, she goes through the book and she cuts out that page that says that and, or pay, and then paste a piece of paper over it and she starts doing it to the other books as well and the teacher is like what are you doing and she's like you know they don't have to see that and I thought it was a powerful scene and in that Cassie describes her mom as being a disrupting maverick and I remember when I was in the early stages of the hate you give and I'm thinking about Star's father and I remember reading back through that book and that scene where she does that the mom does that reminded me so much of something maverick would have done that I was like, hmm, a disrupting Maverick. I like that. Why don't I just name him Maverick? I because that's exactly what he would do. <laughs> I love it so much. I'm also interested to talk about Nick Blake, of course, because she is also kind of really kind of coming to terms with injustice in the world, but also you were able to give her literal power. So before we get into that, though, could you just introduce Nick Blake and the Remarkables to us? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Um, this is a book I've wanted to write for a long time. Um, it is about a 12-year-old girl named Nick, who for most of her life, she and her dad have moved from city to city across the United States. And though it's a bit mm, hard at times, it's a bit suspicious as well that she and her dad can't stay one place long she doesn't think too much of it because, well, they're called manifestors, which is a type of remarkable person, meaning a person with a supernatural ability. Um, and manifestors have what's called the gift. Um, it's a power that's stronger than magic. It's something you're born with. And it's it's you can use it to control the elements. Like her dad knows how to create fire or water or ice in his hands or uh, form a lightning bolt. He can do all these different things. So it's a amazing power but you have to learn how to use it and for her 12th birthday nick wants nothing more than to learn how to use the gift or she wants a pet dragon or a hellhound she gets a hellhound <laughs> her dad says let's wait on the dragon and let's wait on learning the gift but then all of a sudden nick's life is turned upside down and her dad is accused of a crime she's pretty sure he didn't commit and now she has to figure out a way to save him without knowing how to use the gift so it's it's funny that you mentioned that conversation that Cassie's papa has with her in Roll of Thunder, Hear My Cry, where he's like, you have to figure out, you know, what where you stand and what you you can do. Because a lot of what Nick Blake is about is figuring out how to use the power that's within you, you know, and, and learning that the only real gift you need is you. And again, so where I tend to stand with spoilers is we can do spoilers for the book that you've chosen because they tend, you know, they tend to have been out a long time and will obviously avoid spoilers for your recent work. Um, so I won't go into too much, but it is, um, well, where I want to actually start is Jackson because, 
roll of thunder, hear my cry, is that in rural Mississippi, um, you're from Jackson. Uh, Nick Blake Jackson is there again. I don't, it's a, but it starts there, and it's an important location. Um, and I think, am I fair to say that that Garden Heights is a kind of fictionalized kind of yes. So, I'd love to just firstly hear about kind of place and how much. I mean, that must have had an impact reading Roll of Thunder and how, why you, why that is a place that you still keep coming back to as, uh, but with different kind of flavors and lenses as the place to set your work. Yeah. Um, the funny thing is growing up when I did see Mississippi in books, it was like books like Roll of Thunder, Hear My Cry. Um, I never got to see Mississippi in a contemporary setting. Right. You know, I, I, and that's nothing, of course, there's nothing against Roll of Thunder, Hear My Cry or any of those books. Like another book, even when I wasn't a kid, another book that I read as an adult, The Help um, by Catherine Stockett. It takes place in Jackson, but it's in the 60s. So I'm so used to seeing Mississippi in the past and I rarely ever saw Mississippi in the present in books. And as someone who grew up there, who lived there up until about a year ago, I was thinking to myself, maybe I should do something about it. And then I'd have kids who'd say, why don't you put Mississippi in your books? Yeah. Why don't you do it? You know, and the thing about Garden Heights was it was so influenced by Jackson. Um, it was so influenced by my neighborhood, but I never said, you know, it's in Mississippi. I never put a city right. or a state. And so I've had people who live in Atlanta who were like, oh, this is Atlanta. I've oh. had people in Chicago who were like, oh, this is Chicago, you know? So, and that was on purpose, but I felt like, you know what, maybe it's time I actually set something in my home city, in my home state and say, yes, this is Mississippi to not only give the kids there, you know, some representation, but to also show others what Mississippi looks like now, because I think there are a lot of misconceptions, <laughs> you know, and, and because so much of the literature about it is set in the past, people think the past is still the present. Right. You know, and like I'm from Jackson, which is a city with skyscrapers, you know, it's it's not rural at all. Um, and then, too, you know, there are there's a lot that's changed just socially and socioeconomically. And I felt like, you know what, it's time to show Jackson now in a book. Mm -hmm. Awesome. Um, but of course, with Nick Blake, it gets a kind of magical layer. Um, yes. I would love to hear about you moving to fantasy and why now, why this story and I guess, what were the kind of joys of having that? And was there anything that was trickier than you're expecting about moving into the <laughs> fantasy realm? Oh, yeah. Um, well, the funny thing is, like, my favorite books growing up, besides Roll of Thunder, Hear My Cry, that my other favorite books were all fantasy books. Ah, so okay. the Chronicles of Narnia, Harry Potter, I was into all of that. Um, and those those were the books that really pulled me in and and kept me as a reader. Right. Um, but then, you know, once I became a writer, here I am writing contemporary fiction. And then 2020 happened. <laughs> you know, a, a, a very hard year for a lot of us in a lot of different ways. Um, but one thing that happened in 2020, especially after the killing of George Floyd, there was a lot of conversations about what the world looks like versus what it could look like, especially right. for Black Americans. And there was conversations about what if, you know, we reformed police or what if we didn't have police at all in the form that we in the way that we have them now? You know, what if they were what if we changed the way policing looked? Um, what if we had a world without prisons? What if we reformed that? 
Um, what if we just simply had a world where black kids are not racially profiled? And for a lot of people, that felt like a fantasy world. And in my head, I'm thinking, hmm, fantasy world. What if I create a fantasy world where that's a reality? You know, what if I create a world where black people are not racially profiled and don't deal with discrimination, racism, um, any types of oppression? What if I created a world where police handle things differently? What if I create a world where, you know, there aren't any prisons? So that's what I set out to do. And that's essentially how Nick Blake came to be. It was a response to the conversations of 2020. Right. Is it Ursula K. Le Guin who does, has that quote about how fiction is there for us to like, right, I'm going to say it less eloquently than she does, but something about how fiction is there for us to kind of like imagine the way, not even imagine, what is it about how like, that's how we get there is by like writing what could be. Um, and I don't think this is spoilery because it happens very early on. Well, no, I won't even get specific, but Nick meets someone very close to her <laughs> who sees her world through that that lens and just is like so like taken aback. Like he can't quite wrap mm-hmm. his head around it when she mm-hmm. tells her about it. So you have those kind of, I thought it was so clever to have the, it's not like just the fantasy world. It has the two the two realities contrasting. Absolutely. Now, I wanted to write that kid who I won't spoil. <laughs> um, but I, I wanted to write him from the get-go because I thought to myself, you know, how amazing is that? Because one of my biggest hopes as, a, as an author is that one day kids will read my books like The Hate You Give. They'll read On The Come Up, and they'll especially The Hate You Give, and they'll be like, wait a minute, it was like this? You know, I I long for the day the hate you give is irrelevant. I long for the day where it's, you know, ancient. Like this is something that just doesn't register in kids' heads as being reality. Like that happened, police brutality. People had to say Black Lives Matter, what? And I know we're a long way from making that a reality, but I long to see a a little Black boy who's like, what? You know, I, I long to see a, a black child who is like, wait, you have to do what? What right. happened? What are right. you talking about? This doesn't make sense. Because when you think about it, it should be like that for kids. You know, that's we failed them and not given them that world where they can be like, wait a minute, this doesn't make sense. You know, it, it's it's heartbreaking to sometimes sit down with especially black kids in the States. And they're like, yeah, you know, I, my mom had to talk with me about what to do if I'm approached by a cop when I was when I was eight and I'm 10 now. And it's like, wait a minute, you know, what are we doing as a society? So writing that character was cathartic for me. Right. But also, I hope that it gives the adults who read the book a little, I guess, push to make that kid a reality for all of our kids. Yeah. And I guess there's something... I don't know what the right word is, but seeing, you know, you talk about kind of kids in the future, hopefully being able to look back at your work and it be, I guess it's like the idea of it kind of as part of a chain with books like World of Thunder, Hear My Cry. And hopefully, you know, we keep going in the right direction in this chain of books that eventually, hopefully sooner rather than later, we get to that point where those kids, like you say, can look back and it it feels totally foreign and strange to them to read about that. Absolutely, absolutely. And of course, all the world building is like rooted in these ideas. Um, and I loved all the, it's just so, it's fun reading like a magic system that I like, again, don't want to do two spoilers, but you do a really fun thing with the kind of concept of like 
magic and wands as like a kind of almost distorted version of power. Could you tell us a bit about the kind of magic system and how the gift kind of came to be and how you came up with that system? Yeah, I wanted to do something different because there's so many magic books out there, you know, (laughs) and then so many, um, not just the boy with the wand and the scars, so many, there's so (laughs) many, and I wanted to do something different, and I thought a lot about this phrase that's become popular, it's called Black Girl Magic. And, and it's this idea that we've told Black girls that there's something in you, despite what the world tells you, there's something in you that's special um, and, and that's powerful. And I was like, hmm, what if I actually make it so that that's a literal thing, you know? Yeah. So I, I wanted to use something called the gift, but also I was inspired by some of the folklore that I heard as a kid, specifically this one story called The People Could Fly. Um, and it was put in an anthology by a educator and author named Virginia Hamilton, who collected a lot of Black folk tales um, and put them in this one book. But The People Could Fly was this story of enslaved folks who were on a plantation. And one day this mysterious man appeared and he spoke these ancient words to some of these folks, not all of them, but some, and they flew off to freedom. And I remember my mom reading that story to me as a kid and I asked her, I was like, what happened after they flew off to freedom? And she said, I don't know. You tell me. So I decided, you know what? Here I am all these years later. I'm telling her and everybody else. So Nick is a descendant of the people who could fly. And when I, I remember one thing that also stood out to me was the fact that he spoke the ancient words to only a few of the people on the plantation, not all of the enslaved people. So I was like, hmm, that means they had something special. This ability to fly was a gift for them. Let's call it the gift. You know? <laughs> So I, I wanted to say this is something that was in these folks that that it, it existed, but the hardships of slavery and everything made them forget it. But suddenly they remembered who they were and they flew off to freedom. Um, so it, it was paying homage to that story as well, using my magic system. And then, too, I was like, OK, but what about magic? You know, you can't just ignore magic. So I said, hmm, maybe just maybe magic exists. But you can only use a, use it with a wand. And, you know, and we have a whole thing about where wands come from, a sacred tree, and it's a corrupt form of the gift. And I I, I thought, you know what? I, I like that. But it also means that there's something that's in these folks that's so powerful that other people want it themselves. But it's also kind of a metaphor for what you have, the gifts that you have, others can't always copy. You know, and, and when they do... What makes you unique, what makes you special is what makes you unique and you special and everybody can't copy that. So it was kind of a, a way of saying that as well. Yeah. And it also allows one of the things I really enjoyed in the book is it has this kind of almost like gentle meta level because one of the characters is an author of fantasy book. <laughs> and with the kind of like you have the fun you have with the kind of magic and ones, but also he writes these stories which allow you to have a bit of a kind of play with the tropes that you're talking about. And it's like a fantasy book about fantasy books. I I would really, I love a little meta layer, especially in a kid's book. Could you tell me about kind of how that thread got woven in? And you must have had a fun time coming up with those like like pretend books. (laughs) I did. And here's the background behind it. Um, when I first graduated from university, I'd written The Hate You Give as a short story in university. 
And a professor encouraged me to write it as a novel. And I was like, mm, I don't think I want to write this as a book. Right. So I put it aside and I started working on a fantasy book about this little boy, a little white boy named Stevie. Oh. And it was a, you're, you're, you're getting it. So it, was a, <laughs> so it was a fantasy book and I wanted to do a series and I tried to get an agent and I was, re I got like 300 rejections and it was like at the 301st rejection I was like you know what maybe just maybe I should move on and that's when I moved on and wrote the hate you give but then when I got back to decide to do Nick Blake I was like hmm what if there's a book series that Nick and her friend love hmm what should it be called I was like Stevie James so yeah. I made the series that re was rejected I made it a popular series in this book world so I love that that's even better than I was imagining that's so good <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> it also, again, just like, I feel like I love a book that has like this playful tone with kind of the tropes. Again, we can't do spoilers. Yes. But in a kind of abstract sense, I think we could talk about it plays with the ideas of chosen ones. Yes. Uh, so I guess what can you say without giving too much away about how you kind of wanted to play with that side of things? Yeah. Um, what I will say is that I've always, now as an adult, not always, but now as an adult, I look back at the whole chosen one thing, not just Harry Potter, but like Luke from Star Wars, um, Percy Jackson. I look at these chosen one narratives. And I'm like, what are these kids going through? What are they being put through? What happens when you're an adult who was a chosen one? Yeah. <laughs> you know, what does like, you know, we, 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 you know, we've gotten like with Harry Potter, we've gotten like some you know, post the book stuff, but still it's like, okay, but what's the psychology, you know, what is, how did Luke Skywalker become an, a, what did he go through after all of that stuff right. that happened in the movies? You know, what do they go through afterwards? What is it like having, but also even during it, what is it like having the weight of the world on your shoulders to a degree? You know, what is it like? being expected to be the one to change the world, save the world. And you're a kid who's just also still trying to do homework. Right. You know, right. like we don't, so I was like, Hmm, as an adult, I'm like, Hmm, you know, how can I play on this? Um, I, it was kind of similar to what I saw them do in the movie into the spider verse. The first one, oh. um, we saw Spider-Man who had, you know, there was like one of the Spider-Man, he had hit hard times and he was just like going through it. And I'm like, yeah, that makes sense. You know, yeah. I don't know how I I can only imagine the therapy it would take to be a functioning adult, right? After having someone try to kill you most of your childhood, you know? right? <laughs> so I get to play with that a little bit. I hope I didn't spoil it too much, but I got to play with that a little bit, and I yeah. get to play with it throughout the series. You're so right. I find people who aren't writers say to me as a children's fantasy writer, you know, like, oh, it's such a cliche that in kids' books, like, the parents are always dead or missing. Mm -hmm. And it's like, how do you think we facilitate a scenario where a child has to save the world? It's logistics. <laughs> like, it's not, it's not like we've all got some, like, weird thing where we just want to, like, get rid of the parents. We're all working through our own <laughs> personal trauma. Like, it's logistics. <laughs> like, you have to get them out of the way because these are 11-year-olds that somehow you have to make responsible for the fate of the world without doing, like, a really cliched chosen one thing. And really, mm -hmm. there's not many ways to have, like, functioning 
adults present and that still happens if you have like a great parent they just be like no way are you dealing with this like I will look after this for you so you have you have to get them out of the way I feel like so much of writing fantasy is just like logistics just Mm -hmm. getting making it feel halfway realistic that a child can save the world in a very literal sense yeah no no I've as I've been working on like I'm working on the second Nick Blake book now and I'm like how do I get the parents out the way right you know how do I get them out the way it is the core (laughs) question and actually one of the other things and I always say this to um like fantasy writers who are like aspiring fantasy writers and I enjoyed the way you did this as well um the first so my book is six so my series is six books and the first couple the amount of pain just getting children from one place to another and I was like I need and I'm always like to fancy I'm like put a magical transport system in your book from the start I also Mm -hmm. I have a magical train (laughs) because sometimes you just need a magical train to get these kids places you know otherwise you're suddenly like how do I get this 10 year old child to a different country Mm -hmm. even a different city without adults getting involved um so I really enjoy because you also and your magical train is obviously like a well I think I think this isn't too I don't know I'm gonna take your lead on the (laughs) you can tell it but it's another one of those things that just is such a like clever it I mean well you should you should you should tell us about it um because it obviously (laughs) has a clever twist on something that well is both real and not real Mm -hmm. yeah yeah it's the literal or as you all say literal I think I'm doing it right (laughs) underground railroad Um, (laughs) um the underground railroad historically was a a safe haven system that was used in the states during slavery um, to get enslaved folks to freedom. And one of the quote unquote conductors was Harriet Tubman. And it really was, it wasn't a train system. It was really like safe houses. It was code words. It was the use of song to help people like get through these wooded areas and and get north from the south so they could get to freedom and so it was very intricate and all of this this and this but i also remember being a kid and learning about the underground railroad and being very disappointed that there weren't like underground trains (laughs) trains, i was like you're not it's not a it's not an actual underground railroad never like no it's a system and i was so disappointed (laughs) so i was when i was sitting down to do this i said hmm no, what if there's actually a literal underground railroad, like a train system, a actual train? And so that, like you were saying, like one of the things I was told was <laughs> make sure you have a transportation system. Yeah. <laughs> so, you know, you have these underground trains and all you have to tell them is where you want to go and they will take you there. And I thought, you know what, that that makes it so much easier and it's got a historical callback. Let's do it. <laughs> yep. yep. You just have to embrace it. Yeah. Um, my train, um, it can go, it's like, it, it can go anywhere you can imagine. So, you know, sometimes you just that. gotta help yourself, you know? <laughs> I yes. want to uh, just go back to something that you said about, um, talking about the story that your mom told you about the people who could fly. Cause it just really struck me about how much I think as writers, we are kind of answering the what ifs that we had like as children, um, I just love and and it's one thing that I knew I was interested in before I started the podcast but talking to people has made me just realize how much we 
are doing those what ifs that came when we kind of first encountered stories. We've talked about obviously a lot of ways that uh, that Roll of Thunder, Hear My Cry has influenced you. Um, is there anything I guess that we haven't touched on that you feel like, cause you've written obviously across like a few different genres and age groups. Um, it, is it more, is it that you tend to kind of pull on specific what ifs like you mentioned the story that you're aware of is it or is would you say it's more of a kind of unified like theory of like what you're trying to do and a feel that you're trying to give to your readers Mm, I think it's kind of just a feel that I'm trying to get to my readers and sometimes those what ifs that I had as a kid pop back up in my head out of nowhere and then you you start to realize as an adult like whoa I have the ability to answer some of that stuff now especially as an author I have an ability to you know answer the questions little Angie had. Um, but also, I think, I think I look at all of my books as answers to one big what if. And for me, that what if is, what if Black kids can see themselves in a multitude of stories? You know, what, what if they, because I didn't get that. And I think that's the biggest what if I answer as an author, period. So, you know, what if 16-year-old Black girls found their voices by reading this book what if 16 year old black girls you know who have a passion and a dream you know get inspired by reading on the come up you know what if a 17 year old boy who black boy who has gotten himself into trouble reads concrete rose and suddenly he sees himself in maverick and he sees that he's a rose growing in concrete you know and, and what if these 10 12 year old 10 11 12 year old little black girls pick up Nick Blake, and they get to see someone like themselves having a fantasy adventure. What could that mean for them? I look at my career as the answer to a big what if that I have constantly. I love that. And you mentioned that you first read Roll of Thunder because it was on the required reading list. And when I was sort of doing a bit more research into the book, I did, it did keep popping up that um, in some schools in the US, it is not being necessarily like banned or taken out of school libraries, but it's been removed from required reading lists because it uses racial slurs from from the time um like where I'm where do you kind of sit on the best like how to introduce young readers to these these stories that are written by black people and like how yeah how do we how do we do it how what's how what's the best way to do it from your perspective um I think we have to explain context to kids more you know um and, and say to them hey this took place back then and certain words were used then, but I think it's important we we let them read these books as well um, because this is talking about a time that even though, you know, 1933 was almost 100 years ago, there's still something about it that has a contemporary theme, um, you know, and, and there are contemporary, there are issues that we're dealing with now that you can see glimpses of back then. Right. They've just maybe evolved in the way that they present themselves. And and these are the conversations that Cassie's parents have with her are still relevant conversations that parents are having now, right. you know? So I, I think it's, I, th- I don't think we give kids enough credit. I think they can handle more than we think they can. Um, and I think that as long as we, leave the door open for conversation um, and 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 communicate while they're reading these books and explain things, give context, you know, give the history lessons that may be required. I think that they can still benefit from them. 
Now, do I think we just need to let kids only read old books? No, that's like my big <laughs> issue with, you know, schools and everything is because so often those are the only books right. we're pushing towards kids in schools. It's like, read the old stuff. It's like, ah, no, let's let them read some new stuff, please. <laughs> and, you know, the old stuff can be used as well, but I, I want more of the required reads for kids to be books that take place in the here and the now. Because that tells them that the things that they're going through here and now are important. Right, right. As in the old books can be part of the conversation, but not the Absolutely. whole conversation. Absolutely. <laughs> and also, I mean, fiction has, I think fiction, like for children, also can do such an incredible job of like explaining things in a way. Like, you know, Roll of Thunder, Him I Cry does such a great job of kind of explaining how um, like racism isn't just like individual bigoted, like individuals doing individual racist things. And it does a really like child friendly way of ex showing how it's like economic and like the judicial system. And in a way that a child can really understand how these things get baked into systems. Um, and like fiction really can do that in a way that like, I'm not sure anything else can really. Oh, I 1000% agree. I think that Fiction is one of our best teachers. Um, I, I think it's one of the best ways to learn history. Um, I think it's one of the best ways to understand systemic things. Um, I think it's it's one of the best ways to explain all parts of the world, all parts of society. Um, and and it does it it makes the big issues easier for little little kids or kids in general to to handle, to swallow, to deal with. Um, and and they can grasp things even easier. I mean, for even us now, we can look back and some of the things we understand now as an adult, we got a grasp on it because of fiction, you know? And and I think I don't think we I don't think we recognize the power of fiction enough. Um, and I don't think we we I think we can give fiction a little more um, responsibility than we do. And and what I mean by that is we can allow books to teach kids a little bit more than we do. Mm -hmm. Which is why, I mean, watching from, I'm, I'm aware that I am only seeing these things via the news and social media, but obviously in the US, like there's, it feels like the whole like book banning books for kids thing is getting, is escalating. Yes. Um, and like from your perspective as a writer from, for young people like that how are you feeling and also just like what what do we do <laughs> like in terms of like I guess both for young people who feel like distressed but again talking about like finding their voice and their power like for young people like what would you say like they can do to feel like they are doing something that's helping I yeah you know the the book bans are frustrating because a lot of times what's happening is they're banning a book because of one page right. in it or one little section in it. And and they're judging a book by a page and not by its content, you know, or they're making an assumption about it. Like with The Hate You Give is one of the top 10 most banned books. And that's because, you know, people want to say, oh, it's anti-police. And I'm like, her uncle is a cop. What are we talking about? You know, like, how could it be anti-police when it's anti-police brutality? There's a whole discussion about this in the book. If you read the actual book. Right. Um, and I've had people who wanted to ban it. Then they went and read the whole thing and they're like, oh, I was wrong. Oh, so and frustrating. I'm like, well, it's, 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 the, it's so frustrating. Um, but also there's this scary push to 
keep kids in America from learning actual history. You know, um, and if you look at the books that are being targeted in these bands, they're usually books by authors of color or LGBTQIA authors. And and what that says is you're really trying to silence marginalized voices. So it's frustrating. And also what frustrates me more is the message it does send to kids who see themselves in these books. Right. It's like you're telling them, shut up, be quiet. I take issue with that. Um, but what I would say, the best thing any of us can do right now is to support the dang on books. Right. You know, um, um, in America, I encourage people to go to the school board meetings, this, this, and this. But what I would encourage people in the UK to do, because it's happening here as well, just yeah. a bit quieter. Yeah. So I would say, you know, find out where it is happening a bit quieter and speak up, speak out, support those books, support those authors. You know, if you can buy books, buy books, please. If you can request them at your library, request them, request them at the bookstore even. That makes a difference because the big thing right now, the big fear for a lot of authors is, well, these book bans are going to scare publishers off right. from publishing books by book authors of color, from publishing books by LGBTQIA plus authors. And the best thing that we as the public can do is support the books, buy the books, talk about the books, add the books on Goodreads or whatever it is you do. You know, make TikToks about the books, something, anything, but don't let them silence authors because that's essentially what they're trying to do. Um, but yeah, it's it's getting ridiculous. Yeah. It's it's getting ridiculous. Um, to wrap up, I have a couple more questions. Um, one about Nick, and one more about Roll of Thunder. So, uh, again, we can't do spoilers, but could you just tell us a bit about? Do you know how many books you're going to do from Nick Blake? Are you? I'm assuming you're working on the next one at the moment, or is it done? Oh, I, I wish it was done. I'm working <laughs> on it. <laughs> I am working on it. Um, so I hope to do at least four middle grade awesome. Nick Blake books, and then YA Nick Ooh, Blake. Oh, fun! Um, yeah, yeah. Um, you know, I, I, I want to grow her, and you know, we've seen it where characters, where series have become. Young adult, yeah. maybe unintentionally, <laughs> but I plan to do it intentionally, you know, and, and really um, make this switch so it's not just a subtle switch. It's like, oh, this is, right. yeah, same. Yeah, okay. So, yeah, that's the goal. Awesome. Um, so, at least, yeah, at least three more middle grade okay. Nick Blake books. I don't know how many YA just yet. Um, but, yeah, um, and... Let's see. Yeah, I'm, I'm having a lot of fun with it. I'm having a lot of fun awesome, with it. Awesome. And then just to kind of finish off, um, I would love to just hear, like, could you speak to the thing that, how old did you say you were about nine when you read Roll of Thunder? So, like, like, what do you think kind of nine-year-old Angie most took away from Roll of Thunder and how that kind of, yeah, speaks to what you hope your readers take away from your work? Ooh, I would say that Roll of Thunder, Hear My Cry taught nine-year-old Angie, one, how important family is, how important community is, and it also taught her that you're not as helpless as you think. You're not as powerless as you think. Um, I, I think a lot back to this one scene early on in the book, and Cassie and her brothers, they walk to school every day. And this bus that goes to the white school always speeds by to uh, on purpose to uh, kick up dust in their faces or mud or whatever. Like the bus driver gets a kick out of it and the 
and the kids on the bus get a kick out of it. And then one day, Cassie and her brothers decide, you know what, we're going to do something about this. And so they dig a hole in the street when it's raining and they cover it so it doesn't look like a hole. And the, later on, the bus goes through and gets stuck. And they felt like that was their revenge. Mm-hmm. And I remember laughing so hard <laughs> at that, that scene and then thinking, wait a minute, they did something about something. This was, and you know, it's, you when you look back on it, it's like, oh, those kids just dug a hole. But no, they took some power back. So what Roll of Thunder, Hear My Cry taught nine-year-old Angie was, even when you're dealing with bullies or whatever it may be, there are ways for you to take some of your power back. Awesome. Thank you so much. Uh, It has been wonderful chatting to you. I really appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you. This was fun. Thanks so much for listening to Book Wandering. And a reminder that you can buy Roll of Thunder, Hear My Cry and Nick Blake and the Remarkables with free shipping via bookshop.org using the code bookwanderer and support indie bookshops. The link is below. If you enjoyed this episode, then spreading the word would be greatly appreciated by sharing it online, telling your friends or leaving a review. You can find me at A Case of Books on social media or you can email me at annajamesauthor at gmail.com. The podcast is produced by Adam Collier with artwork by Hester Kitchen. And next week, I'll be chatting to Eliza Clark about Terry Pratchett's truckers. So do come back next Sunday and listen. And until then, happy book wandering. Thank you.